when the Word of God was read. That'd be a good thing to do, wouldn't it? We won't this morning. It's also, in some denominations, they, when they finish reading God's Word, you know, the reader gives some sort of statement, this is the Word of God, thanks be to God, and the people respond by saying, what do they say? Thanks be to God. May God bless the reading of his word to us. The fall of Joshua. Chapter divisions in the Bible are not there. And so this is the beginning of this very important section. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servants? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out, no one came in. And then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all of the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all of the people give a loud shout. And then the wall of the city will collapse. The people will go up, every man straight in. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the people, the soldiers, the armed troops, advance, march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets. And the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched the head of the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the people, do not give a war cry, don't raise your voices, don't say a word until the day that I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the, ark of the Lord carried around the city circling it once. Then the people returned to camp, spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the Ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, uh, marching before the Ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men ahead of them and the rear guard followed the Ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. And so on the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise you will make the camp of uh, Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and the gold, the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. 
When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted at the sound of the trumpet. When the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with a sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out with all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver, the gold and the articles of bronze and iron in the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. That time Joshua pronounced this solemn curse. Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundation. And at the cost of its youngest will he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. This is the word of the Lord. And you respond by saying, thanks be to God. Let's try that again. This is the word of the Lord. It's a terrific story, isn't it? And disgusting, isn't it? They devoted the city of the Lord uh, to the Lord. They destroyed with a sword every living men, women, young and old. Every man, every woman, every teenager, every primary school kid, every baby, every pregnant woman, killed. We will certainly spend a few minutes this morning trying to get our brain around that because this, that is one of the objections that the atheists, the new atheists particularly, bring against the God that we believe in. They don't believe in God, but they're cranky with us that we believe in such a God who would be so cruel, so, such, so vindictive, such a bully, so nasty. And we rightly react when people do that in cities today. We are rightly repulsed by it because it's inappropriate. But as we all come to, there is a difference with this particular instance. There's an old... Negro spiritual says, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. No, he didn't. Jesus did. Joshua didn't fight, except for the mopping up situation. He was obedient and he watched around it. Here is Joshua, he's crossed the Jordan, which was flooded, remember this, and he crosses it, and the Jordan closes behind them, which was miraculous and also, what? Scary, because now they're locked in. Guess where they can't go? Back. Which is the only way to go? forward what did God say to do didn't say anything so we read that here we find Joshua having been through the circumcision bit having been uh, obedient to the Passover and then having eaten of the fruit of the land and the manna stopping we then find Joshua wondering gee what's next well when God called you in a direction and if there is no further instructions keep going the way that he had asked you to go that's wisdom isn't it so here is Joshua Verse 13 says, when Joshua was near Jericho, what was he doing near Jericho? God, Bible doesn't say. What do you think he was doing there? 
the leader of the army. He's got a bit of the report from the spies. I reckon he's checking out the walls of the city. Maybe he's walking around it looking for a particular window with what hanging from it. A red cord. Ah, there it is. Or perhaps for the very first time he's considering how many ladders am I going to need to get over those walls? What size battering rams am I going to need to bust through these gates? He's trying to be obedient to that which God is leading him towards. He had never invaded a city before in his battles. And while he is out there, he looks up and he sees a man, a soldier, with a sword drawn. In chapter 1, God had said to Joshua, be strong and very courageous. What does Joshua do in this situation? The Bible says he looked up and then he went up. He went up to this man. He walks straight towards him and he challenges him. He's obviously not dressed like an Israelite, but he asks the question, are you for us? Because if you are, you better explain yourself because you're supposed to be back in the camp. Or you're against us. And if so, then you better get ready to defend yourself. It's that sort of challenge in his voice. And what's the reply? I like the reply, verse 14. The person with a drawn sword dressed in armour, who turns out to be a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus. This is God who has appeared to Joshua. This is his, I'm not sure if it's his first time, but it certainly is since he took over from Moses, that he has seen the Lord in some form. Because in verse 2 of chapter 6, it's the Lord who is speaking to him. And in a moment, he's going to bow down and worship and take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. He walks up to this man. You're for us or you're against us? And the person says, neither. I'm not on Israel's side, and I'm not on the Canaanite side, the Jerichoites. I am the Lord. In fact, he says, I am the captain of the Lord's hosts. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. I'm the commander-in-chief. Not just of Israel's human army, but of another army, an invisible army, an army of angels that some in our world have encountered and certainly to which the scriptures refer. Here is the Lord appearing to Joshua as a man of war. The sword is drawn because God is ready for judgment. Not on Joshua, but on the people of Jericho. And Joshua immediately, sensing in his heart, bows before him and knowing instinctively who it is, just like we would. Who was it who said that if, you know, somebody great from history walked into our room like Napoleon or, I don't know, some great conqueror of the past, if they walked into the room, we would rise in honour of them. When the Lord Jesus Christ appears, we will fall on our faces before him in honour of him, like Revelation chapter 1 with the Apostle John. Joshua does that, bows before him. And appropriately says, which is a good thing for us to say in the Lord's presence, what message does my Lord have for me, his servant? What instructions do you have for me? What do you want to say to me? Open-hearted. Joshua is how? uh, Bowing, kneeling. And then verse 15 says, interestingly, the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing. You're not kneeling now, he's standing. So the text doesn't say it, but what I imagine happened is uh, he kneels 
and then the commander of the Lord's army tells him to arise and he does and then he says now take your sandals off exactly the same words that Moses got and Joshua would have known that for the place where you are standing is holy this is the Lord commissioning him sending him forth on a similar task as God himself sent Moses what does my Lord say to me it's interestingly that Joshua encounters the Lord while he is in the path of duty and we like Joshua need to be submissive uh, open-hearted willing to be fully obedient to whatever it is God says to us then there was a little aside which is very important chapter 6 verse 1 now Josh, uh, Jericho was tightly shut up it was sealed the gates were sealed no one went out no one came in because of the fear of the Israelites They had shut the gates. So to Israel and perhaps to Joshua, the situation appeared, what, hopeless? Uh, Certainly difficult. To Jericho, to the people on the inside, it probably felt secure. And to God, the shut gates just revealed how stubborn you are, how resistant. And so verse 2 of chapter 6, the Lord says to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. It's a prophetic perfect. It's something that's going to happen in the future, but it's so certain that it's going to happen. It's spoken of as if in the past tense, as if it's already happened. I have given into your hands the city of Jericho. I own it. It belongs to me. He's the God of the whole earth. And he's delivering it and all of its contents to Joshua. And he basically says, we're in this together. I'm in charge, you're involved, that's mine, I'm giving it to you and when you get it, give it all back to me. That's basically what God is saying because Jericho is going to be the first fruits of the promised land gift to his people, Israel. And then God gives very specific instructions on what he wants to happen. Um, I've given Jericho into your hands. Looks very unlikely probably to Joshua at the moment and the solution is very unusual The response required is one of obedience and the consequences are success. And please note that Joshua does respond with amazing obedience. In verse 6a it says that Joshua, immediately after this conversation, it would have been quite okay for him to ask questions, to clarify. I think that's acceptable. Not to modify, not to resist, but to be clear. And we're not told any of that stuff. We are just simply told Joshua received these very unusual instructions about marching around the city on once a day for six days and seven days on the seventh day and then to shout and then to go in, every man straight in. Verse 6, Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and he said, take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. He just instructs them immediately. Verse 7, he informs the army. Verse 8, he informs the people. He just gets on with it. What he's told to do, he goes to do. What an amazing example for us. Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators, was a parent, a dad. He was a man with a military background, had some kids, several kids, three or four kids. On a regular basis, because of his military background, he used to line them up. And he would walk along the line from the eldest down to the youngest. Take note of this. If you're a parent, this is a good exercise to do. And then he used to ask them, what do your mum and me require of you? What do we want you to do? First child would answer, the oldest would answer, um, one thing, sir. 
Second child, answer accordingly. One thing, sir, one thing, sir, one thing, sir. Then he would go back to the first one. And what is that one thing? And the kids would say, to do everything you say, sir. I'll go through that again in case parents want to write that instructions down. That's what the Lord says to us. What is it you want us to do? One thing. And what is that, sir, Lord? I want you to do everything I ask you to do. Great Commission, go into all the world, baptise, make disciples, baptise them. In the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I have given you or that I've commanded you. Teach them to obey everything. That's all through the scriptures. Luke 6.46, Jesus says to his disciples and to other people, why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me Lord, Lord? If you're not going to do what I say. Good question. Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father who was in heaven. Matthew chapter 17 verse 5. There's a cloud come overhead at the Mount of Transfiguration. The voice from the cloud says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Or I love what Mary says. It was in one of the songs we sang about um, how he turned water into wine. Well, in that, st- in that story where Jesus, in this very first public miracle that he does, it's Mary goes to the servants, having been declined by Jesus, saying, it's not my time and it's not ready. And She goes to the servants and says these incredible words, whatever he says to you, do it. Whatever he says to you, do it. That's what Joshua does here. Whatever the Lord said to him, he did it. It's certainly a strange strategy, isn't it? Take up these... Trumpets, these shafars, these ram's horns. And you can't play music, too much nice music on it. You can announce things, two or three different notes, but you can't, you know, play a nice little tune. And they had to march around the city blowing these things. It's almost like drawing attention to them, to the people in Jericho. And we're not told, but I wonder if they responded by mocking and by jeering. You know, to them it would have appeared just like some sort of public protest, carrying banners and an annoying thing more than a threatening thing. I wonder if they responded like that. But God was certainly blowing, having those trumpets blown to draw attention to him, to his presence, because he was in the midst. The Ark of the Covenant, representing the Lord's presence, was circling the city once a day for six days. The Lord circling the city with his armed soldiers. That's a warning to those on the inside. It was a strange strategy which would have certainly tested the faith and trust of Joshua and he remarkably doesn't question it. It would have tested the obedience of Israel to Joshua their leader. He said, what? And then particularly if they were exposed to ridicule or to mocking. It may also have tested the, the uh, Israelite soldiers as they were marching around. They were leaving their camp undefended. So there could have been a test of their own trust in God's protection. Perhaps an element of it. But it was certainly, I think, to communicate to the people on the inside of the city of Jericho. Rather sadly... In their defiance, their response is one of shut gates. Keeping, if you like, keeping God out. 
I want nothing to do with you. It certainly demonstrates God's incredible patience. Chapter 5, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 1, we're told a little bit about the, the people on the inside were fearful, their hearts melting, they couldn't even breathe. There was no spirit left in them because of the Israelites. And even with that sort of background knowledge, this fear of the presence of God with his people coming, God still gives them seven days' notice. The God who delivered the, uh, his people out of Egypt, the God who opened the Red Sea, the God who defeated the kingdoms of Og and Zion, the God who brought these people through a flooded Jordan River, that God is now on their doorstep. They can't protect themselves against him. Yes, we can. Shut the gates. It was an irrational strategy, a strange strategy. Tested Joshua, tested the soldiers, the people of Israel. And it demonstrated God's patience, but also the people who were in Jericho, their defiance of God. So sure enough, that's what's happened. Day one, the troops get up and they march around in total silence. The trumpets are blaring. They return to the city. Three things. Number one, very clearly, as I've already indicated, it's demonstrating that God was in their midst. Soldiers to the front, seven priests with seven shafars, trumpets blowing. Priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant and then soldiers behind them. That was the pattern, the march around the city. Jericho, the archaeologists say, was about nine acres and people estimate that would take less than an hour. 40, 45 minutes? I don't know. But less than an hour, they say, to march around. And that seems to be right because on the seventh day they have to do it seven times and still have time for the battle on that day. God was in their midst. The ark was centre stage. That's what I want us to get. The spotlight was upon the presence of God. The trumpets were drawing attention to it. So too for us. It's God in our midst. Not just that general truth that God is with us, like God is you know, omnipresent, he's everywhere. Not just that truth, but God with us. God in us through our relationship with Jesus, dwelling in us by his spirit. God with us as we serve him. God for us in the endeavours we are involved in in his name. God's presence makes the difference. It does here and it does in our life. There's something else to note. Persistence was required. As I was reading through this during the week, there was lots of little side things that I noted and uh, fascinated me, but, and he was one of them. The people of Israel had been told, I have given you the city. I have to do this, and they did. Uh, one commentator suggests that Joshua, in fact, didn't tell the people of Israel the whole plan. He told them, today we have to march around, and it was day-by-day -day instructions. I can't quite see that, but he certainly could have. But I did see this. For six days, they marched around, and it looked like, this isn't working, Nothing's changing. Get up and do it again. Get up and do it again. No advance is being made. The situation is normal. And even on the last day, seven times around, by the end of the sixth time around, nothing. This isn't working. This isn't working. When God has led you in a path and he gives no more revelation, continue in the direction that you're supposed to be going. Let him redirect your steps. And it's on the seventh time. Just like with Naaman's baptism, commanded to go and baptise in the Jordan, it's seven times down. One, nothing. Two, nothing. Five times, nothing. Six times, nothing. He was told seven. Seventh time, dramatically healed. 
So too Israel. Persistence required. They had to persevere in the call of God and it's modelled here for us. The author of Hebrews in fact picks up on this and he says through faith and patience, through faith and perseverance, the people inherited the land. Both are required to believe and to persist in following God's path. Then this occurred to me. God said do this for six days and on the seventh day, that's seven days, that's a week. What are you supposed to have off once a week? A Sabbath. Where's the Sabbath? Is God disobeying his own commands? My response to that is simply to say, no, in fact, this is more like a week of Sabbaths. Every day was like a Sabbath. The only thing they did for six days was to go for a walk, and that was some of them. The people were resting. And the soldiers took a walk, which took less than an hour or thereabouts, and then returned to their camp. And on the sixth day, on the seventh day rather, that was the day that they were going to work. So the Sabbath is still being obeyed, in fact being extended. And on the seventh day, on the seventh day and on the seventh circuit, the blast of the trumpets, the shout of the army, the collapse of the walls, the charge up the hill, into the city, over the rubble, the ducking from missiles and swords and spears and stuff being thrown at you because they were soldiers on the inside defending their family, their land, their territory. They charge into the city and it's a bloodbath. It's awful. War is awful. And everyone is slaughtered. And then there is silence. There's no more clashing swords, no more yelling because it's over. It's finished. Everyone dead let me take a couple of minutes just to talk about this thing of this annihilation of a city this devotion of a city to the Lord this complete destruction this harem um, there are probably six or seven things I want to race through quickly and I'm happy to talk more with you afterwards. It certainly is a difficult issue, but number one, bear this in mind, or bear these things in mind. Israel acted under God's commands. This is not simply a human dictator, a cruel, malicious ruler wanting to be nasty to people. This is God the judge exercising divine judgment. And he certainly has the right to visit judgment upon us, personally as well as nationally. Jericho was devoted to the Lord, as I said before, as the first fruits of the land. And it was a very wicked city. It was idolatrous. It was licentious. It was defiant. And archaeology and the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 18, refer to some of the sins and the disgusting habits of the people of Canaan, including the people of Jericho. Secondly, because God was intending to use his people, Israel, who weren't squeaky clean, perfect people like us, but God was intending to use them to bless others, the, the nations. For them to compromise at this point, to have the possibility of being infected by the sinful habits of the Canaanites, then that would render God's purposes uh, weaker, null and void. Sin is contagious. Listen carefully. Sin is contagious. To compromise with evil is dangerous. <clears throat> We delude ourselves and deceive ourselves if we think we can get away with it. It leaves us open. It invites spiritual response or disaster. And in fact, 
This is the central message in the text of um, why God did this. If you have a look at the passage, then it's verse 16. The seventh time round, when the priests uh, sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that it is in it is devoted to the Lord, except for Rahab. Then jump down to verse 20. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, the people rush in. Verses 17, 18 and 19 are in the middle of that thing, those two connectives. The story flows very well without it. The author has deliberately put that there. He's got this delayed climax to the development of the narrative. If the story is going and he suddenly stops to emphasise this, and the point is one of sin is contagious. This has to be totally handed over to the Lord. This has to be completely removed. Next thing I want to say is it wasn't a sudden destruction. Uh, They knew about God's people coming out of Egypt for 40 years and for 40 years they hadn't changed their mind with one exception, Rahab and her family. And in fact it's more than 40 years. The Bible indicates that way back in Genesis 15 God had said 400 years beforehand to Abraham. Your people will go down to Egypt and after 400 years they will come out and then I will remove the Canaanites because the sin of the Amorites of the Canaanites are not yet full. God was giving them 440 years, 400 years plus to repent, to turn around. And even then, when he arrives, he gives them another seven days, walks around the city. And none of them responded by saying, I need to go to God to mercy. They cannot hold out against this God, but they thought they could. I also want to say this, God never judges without warning and he didn't hear. And God doesn't desire to judge people. This is his strange work. This is his uncomfortable work, if you like, that the prophets talk about. But he will. Because he is just. He is holy. And just like we innately have within us, when we have been wronged, when somebody has hurt us, when somebody has done the wrong thing to us, then we instinctively want justice. God is a God of justice. When people defy him, rebel against him, resist and ignore all pleas that he gives of warnings of judgment, what else can he do? What else can a father do who says he will discipline the child when the child continues to be disobedient? The father must discipline. The father must make a judgment. And our Heavenly Father has said exactly that. He doesn't want to judge people. He desires rather for people to repent, to change their minds, to come to him to say, I did wrong, I'm sorry. He wants people to be saved, to be delivered from the judgment and wrath that is coming. God, in fact, please don't die. Turn. So this is not a genocide of Joshua having a hissy fit because this is not a man wreaking havoc on other people. This is the creator judge executing people who are defiant of his rule and it's an example and a foretaste of that which is to come one day in the future this same captain of the army of the lord's host the lord jesus himself will descend and then everybody globally will be under the ban everybody will be devoted to judgment and to removal but until then he waits he waits for you to reply he waits for you to decide he waits 
Do what Rahab did, turn to him for mercy. She received it and so may you, so may your loved ones. Don't respond like the people of Jericho. Don't shut the gates. Don't try and wall him out. Don't think that you can resist him. Well, verse 24 says that after Rahab, well, Rahab has gone up to uh, knock on the door and she's taken out. Imagine that scene. Verse 22 and following, there's a knock on the door. She and her family are inside. Many of the walls have fallen down. There's the hearing of the battle and the battle has now stopped. There's silence. And then there's a knock and she opens the door and she recognises the two spies. There must have been tears of relief and of gratitude. She exits the house with her family and the soldiers must be staring at her. Then she comes with her family back to the camp and they must have been staring at her. Where was she located? Which tribe was she allocated to? Verse 23 says she was taken outside the camp because she's a Gentile and so were her dad and mum and brothers and sisters. Excuse me. They, the guys, would have been circumcised. They would have been baptised, cleansed ceremonially. Then they would have been brought into the camp. And just to finish the story of Rahab, which is a fantastic story, Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 tells us she eventually marries a bloke by the name of Salmon. And Salmon and her have a son and his name is Boaz. His mum, Rahab. So his wife, just like his mum was a Gentile, so now his wife was a Gentile, Ruth. And God, wonderfully, in mercy, incorporates these guys into the covenant line that is the genealogy, the bloodline of the Lord Jesus. He is a God of mercy who delights to take sinners and to restore them and to reward them. But please note also, what a great blessing one person can be in a family. Rahab and her family saved them, delivered them. And then there is verse 26, Joshua gives a curse. God keeps his word. He kept his promise to Rahab and he kept his, this curse that Joshua gives. 500 years later, 1 Kings chapter 16, a father will lose his son, two sons, in the process of rebuilding. Time is gone. <clears throat> what does all this mean for us? We, like Joshua and the people of Israel, walk by faith, not blind trust, not blind faith, but trustingly. Just like a pilot trusts the instruments on his plane when he can't see, he trusts the higher authority. So we walk by faith. God is faithful to his word and we walk by faith of his word, of what that teaches us about him. The Lord is the commander-in-chief and we need to submit to him. When he directs us, we are to respond with submission and obedience. We, like Joshua and the people of Israel, are called into warfare, not physical warfare, but spiritual warfare, to advance against the enemy. And the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Prayer and the reading of the word, the gospel of the Lord Jesus, is our weapon that we are to use against the enemy. We are called to do just one thing for God, everything he says. God is with us in our midst. That's the key to success. So therefore, stay away from the contagion of sin. Pastor David will come back to this next week. But when all the fighting stopped, when there was silence, when they had gone up the stairs and they had gotten Rahab out of her house with her family and they came down, then Joshua gave the command, now go and collect all of the precious items, the gold and the silver and the brass and the iron and collect all of that. And they did. 
And a bloke by the name of Achan was doing what everybody else was doing under instructions, go and collect the precious things. And then what they were supposed to do was to bring that and to put it into the treasury of the Lord. Achan was doing what everybody else was doing. In the midst of obedience, temptation lurks. That's the point. God is in our midst. That's the key to our success, particularly in spiritual warfare. So stay away from the contagion of sin. In the midst of obedience, be aware of temptation and don't give in. Just as Jericho was destroyed, so one day this world will be destroyed. We cannot protect ourselves against God's wrath. We need mercy. We need the mercy of the commander-in-chief. We need to flee to him and ask him to forgive us. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the commander-in-chief, the commander of the Lord, the army of the Lord of hosts. <clears throat> you reign and rule on high. One day you will return with that army to demonstrate and execute your will in this world. Between now and then, you've enlisted us and we are to serve in your spiritual army to advance your kingdom. So, Lord, may you assist us to be just like Joshua, submissive, worshipful, obedient, completely obedient. Assist us in this, we pray, for your sake. Amen. Thanks, Daryl.